This is a becoming creature. You can learn more about this show on becomingcreature.substack.com. On this episode, I speak with Michael about capitalism, consumerism, phenomenology, natural action, and so much more. We hope you enjoy. I am your host, Nick, and on this special holiday episode, I am joined by the marvelous, magnanimous, mustachioed Michael Kersey. <laughs> Michael Kersey, spelled C-U-R-D-I. He looks up the spelling. on YouTube. He writes on Substack, offers training on Superpeer, and you can catch him streaming philosophers on Twitch playing Flight Simulator. Michael, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's the holiday season. It's uh, the solstice. We are upon the solstice. So can you tell me a little bit about what this season means to you, what it means to you this year? Uh, maybe what was your experience with the holidays growing up? Yeah, I mentioned we were chatting before. I grew up uh, Jewish. Um, you know, we did Hanukkah. I, you know, had some kind of friends and of different, you know, religious backgrounds or whatever. But, you know, when you're at that age, I think you're thinking about how many presents you're going to get. And like, that's kind of where your head's at. Um, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I have like special feelings about the season, but I do want to work it into our Christmas theme so I can kind of come up with some. Yeah. Let's go straight fiction. Straight fiction. Make something, <laughs> make something up. <laughs> well, let me tell you, dude, I just fucking hate Christmas. <laughs> Why do you hate Christmas? <laughs> I hate Christmas because I hate capitalism. No, I, why would anybody hate Christmas, man? No, listen, I have my doubts about capitalism, but I do think Christmas is good. And I even think the sort of corporatized Christmas is good. And it's obvious that it's fucking good because people love buying, you know, the lattes and they love getting presents and shit. I understand that it's stressful. It's, it's not really rightfully my thing to have an opinion about because I basically have yeah. never really, really done it. I've never been expected to buy a bunch of shit for my for my people. But, you know, as a semi-outsider, I'm a semi-outsider because I'm Jewish, but I feel like a total insider because I'm American, you know? Right. <laughs> so you share in the commercial activities. Yeah, I've, I've seen, uh, I've watched, uh, one of my favorite movies is a Christmas movie. Is uh, What the hell is this movie called? Die Hard. Nicolas Cage. <laughs> you know, I, I, I do love Die Hard. No, Nicolas Cage, The Family Man. You ever see this movie? Oh, I've never seen it. Nope. It's a very heartfelt movie. It's a great movie. It's a great Christmas movie because it has one of the things that interests me most about Christmas movies, which is a spiritual message. Um, mm -hmm. I, I won't I won't spoil the whole thing, but it's there's kind of like, you know, a guy gets a second chance kind of thing. You know what I mean? And that guy happens to be Nicolas Cage, which is even better. Um, yeah. So yeah. I got to see it. Hmm. I'm going to go back to capitalism here. I don't know if you saw it, but I was, while I was trying to prep for this interview, mm. I was like also on Twitter arguing about capitalism. As you <laughs> so, do. So just tell me your, your feelings about capitalism, your broad strokes, capitalism, go. Broad strokes, capitalism, go. All right, I'll tell you. Um, years ago, I was a diehard anarcho-capitalist. Um, I believe uh -huh. that the state was an affront to mankind and should be abolished. 
and uh, could be replaced with non-coercive sort of self-assembling cool entities like private courts and private armies and private uh, police forces and stuff. Um, I do not believe that anymore. It's not my mm. current worldview. We were just talking about cyberpunk. Uh, I have been enjoying playing this new cyberpunk game. And again, again, I'm not going to spoil anything. I fucking hate spoilers. I'm not going to spoil anything. But in terms awesome. of broad themes, um, there's a lot of cool stuff in the cyberpunk genre uh, in general, not just in this game that just came out. For people who don't know, you know, Cyberpunk 2077 is this game that just came out. It had like 11 years of development and it turned out really buggy and stuff. But it is cool anyway. But in the genre as a whole, you do have this theme of generally major economic inequality. And you have basically massive companies, massive technological advance, but also social dissolution. And you end up with this like two class society kind of thing. So that's been on my mind. Right. So we're talking about cyberpunk and what does that have to do with capitalism what it has to do with, <laughs> thank you um <laughs> no thank you capitalism is clearly one of the most powerful things on earth mm. it's shaping the world we live in it clearly is yeah the fact that you can fueled by money make massive institutions and make uh yourself one of the most powerful people in the world that is crazy right the question then is if it's powerful you know, if it has magnitude, what's the direction? So mm. if it's powerful, is it also good? That, I think, is one of the big questions who, one who wants to have opinions on such things um, should be asking about capitalism. Unless for some reason you don't believe it's powerful, but it's pretty hard to argue that. Yeah, absolutely. I'll share a little bit of my take on this. Yeah. <laughs> because I, I was just arguing about this. But um, basically, I think that for a system to work with humans and operate with human tendencies, you need to take human nature into account. And I think though, although capitalism has some of these problems, um, if it just meanders on its own without any kind of um, help, then you get these monopolies and, and this abuse. However, capitalism is the only economic system that I've ever seen that takes people's worst attributes, their greed and their vices, and right. channel them into creating a better world. And I feel like if you, if you have any kind of system that's going to work long term, you need to take those aspects of human nature, the psychopaths and the greed. And if you can make a psychopath, you know, become Lance Armstrong instead of someone that's, um, you know, destroying people's lives, then I think that's that's a great and wonderful thing. Sorry, now I have this image in my mind of Lance Armstrong as a psychopath who's destroying people's lives. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> With a, like a, a flamethrower. Yeah, that motherfucker's always just biking around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's just, it just seems so clear to me that the whole problem with something, for instance, central planning, is that the market is extremely efficient at getting people things they want or need. Right. And can choose for. So it's giving freedom to individuals. When you have this central planning, it's it's like the hubris of whoever can be the most totalitarian, you know, because there's no such thing as a benevolent leader in central planning. Some believe that. Yeah, I, I think I think that's a dream. Right. This, if if I release all this, I'm gonna get so much flack. But the the problem, I mean Hayek talks about this. The problem is that 
crowding out, right? The evil and the totalitarian and, and the cruel crowds out all the good stuff just because that kind of system, central planning system rewards brutality and force. I think to say, oh, we're going to create the system and install a benevolent ruler, you know, that that's the same justification for tyranny that, oh, we want a good ruler, but the good ruler is only going to be there for a little while. And then you're going to have a bad ruler and not be able to do shit about it. So that's, it's the same problem. Yeah. I, I feel like maybe then it would be interesting to back this up into just a conversation about human nature a little bit, because, um, yeah, it is interesting that I, that in your, the accounting you're giving, um, you both have the sort of, uh, capitalism, uh, is working on the basis of people's bad features, right? Negative features, like you're talking about greed and stuff like that. And also the alternative of, of kind of central planning thing uh, also seems unworkable to you because of the, the the idea of the benevolent ruler seems unrealistic. So the through right. line I see there is maybe you have a sort of negative view of human nature, if I may challenge you on this. I think that human nature is extremely diverse. You have people that are reacting to their environment and are destructive. And then you have other people that are more um, bringing the best out of individuals. And I think that everybody from the psychopath to the Christian altruist, those mm -hmm. are all on a spectrum of individuals. And that is all important. The psychopath has a role in society. And what I'm saying is that capitalism allows people to fulfill the role in a way that benefits society. So for instance, a psychopath might be really useful in war and it might be really useful as a corporate leader mm -hmm. where economics is important. And by him being self-serving because he's within this contract, he's actually being more productive for society and hiring more people and all of these things that reward him or her. I'm saying him probably a hundred times and I'm realizing it, but obviously, but yeah, you, I, you see what I'm getting at that, that capitalism takes the worst parts of people and corrects for it in a way that's productive for society. Here's what I'd be interested in. What kind of systems can be built that sort of productively facilitate the best parts of people to come out? I think that it's true that, that capitalism can be this, like it can't have this conversion rate from kind of, you know, whatever the, the selfish drive to something pro-social. But um, I'm pretty interested in the question of how can we let the good drives out? And also the question of whether people can be reformed. This is something I think about is like, can people change? Um, right. I think the answer is complicated. Well, let me, let me expand more on this. And I'm doing a lot more talking than usual. Yeah. But, but basically, the thing about capitalism is that long term in a capitalist society, it appears that capitalism isn't only an economic system, but because it's also partially a political system and gets down to individuality, that it is in a way self-correcting that even though you have these monopolies and these abuses over time, the result is prosperity because the society comes back and begins to fix these little problems that peak up every now and then. It's just that the meandering of culture and society is is so dangerous and chaotic. But with capitalism, it appears to be always toward growth in the long run. Yeah, it could be. I think part of this is part of why I brought up the the cyberpunk genre, though, yeah. is because it interests me. 
let's take what you said as as one option, right? That on net in the long enough term, the thing self-corrects and someone changes society in a way that tilts it a little bit off course. You know, we're doing too much of some activity. Well, that creates a market opportunity for somebody else where they can right. now get rich, you know, putting us back on a course that's good for everybody. Um, that's one story. There's another story where the forces of, uh, and, and now I feel like the, like the word capitalism is like a little bit losing its meaning, but it's like the, the forces involved, they allow for cancerous growths. That might not be the perfect metaphor, but it's something like... Like the crash of 2008, or what do you mean by cancerous growths? Here's another way to put it. Nietzsche, I am I am led to believe, I haven't read the specific quote from him, but I'm, I'm led to believe that uh, Nietzsche says, you know, one of the ways to domesticate an animal is to make it sick. The world that's created that is driven by the profit motive might result in a lot of sick people in the sense that, like, you know, a lot of how we spend our time is kind of shitty eating a lot of sugary stuff that makes us completely sick. And even when we don't have to, right, even people who are not forced by economic circumstance to eat shitty food will eat badly and give themselves, you know, health issues and stuff like that. And like people watching porn all the time and people delaying relationships longer and longer. So like, I'm not like super moralistic about this stuff. Like, oh, we should like legislate mm. and make society and like prevent people from doing these things. I definitely think like, you know, believe me, I, I, I have my vices, right? It's like, I believe you. Yeah, you believe me. Thanks, man. Um, I don't know. Like, do we like the people we're becoming? Like, do you like, here's a question. It's mm -hmm. like, do you like modern people? Do you like what we're like? Like, uh, the, there's not a right answer here. I like you, Michael. Cool. Well, th thank you. <laughs> thank you. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I have strong opinions on this question. Okay, that's not true. Okay. I have opinions on this question, but I don't know if I have like a really coherent thesis that I'm like ready to present. I guess I just... I'm interested in sci-fi because I'm interested in the, these sort of ideas of like future burn. Um, uh -huh. I don't know if you've heard this phrase before, if this phrase is no. widely known. Um, there's just a sense you get that like the future could be really fucking different from the past. And mm -hmm. maybe we're going into an, a, an unknown world that could be, right. could be better or worse, but it's definitely alien. It's definitely terrifying. Like, have, have you seen um, her? Uh, her is a great, a great movie. It's not the one I was thinking of. Arrival. Yeah. Oh man, Arrival. Right. Arrival is one of the great philosophy movies. Arrival's I awesome. Think. Arrival's awesome. Yeah. Again, no spoilers, but one thing you'll see from the movie posters is just like this big fucking obelisk lands on Earth. This is part of why sci-fi is fascinating, is because it, yeah. it has this truth in it that it, it it sort of helps alert us to this truth, which is that things are changing outrageously fast. You know, things do change. Technological change is outrageously fast and we don't know where it's going. And I think that feeling of like, wait, there's a fucking obelisk and we don't know what it is and what it's doing. I think a lot of that mm -hmm. is that's our sense of the future that's being depicted there. It's kind of like an info hazard to think too much. I feel like like beyond 10 years, because you think about Web 2.0 and, you know, Twitter and Instagram and all of this stuff and there's no way to predict where culture is going next mm. um especially with machine learning and driverless cars and everything yeah I, I think that you can get yourself tied up in knots and maybe even a bit paranoid however <laughs> i am going to get back on my my list of topics here and it says <laughs> I see. I spooked you with sci-fi <laughs> <laughs> a, a little. Right. Well, I don't. I don't have a lot of intelligent things to say about about sci. I mean, I've read sci-fi. I read all yeah. of uh, the Foundation series, right? 
People keep telling me to read Foundation. It was um, not worth reading. <laughs> I read <laughs> there. There's there's a few really good concepts. I would say don't read the whole series. Right. Um, I, people are gonna execute me for saying that. I would say don't read the whole series. Just learn about the mule and about the general concept of the galaxy during the mule's reign, and and you're good. All right. Say no more. Say no more. I'll check it out. I'm intrigued. So, um, during this holiday season, I there's some like a difficult to describe feeling that I have. It feels atomized and insulated and isolated. And this is usually a time for coming together with family. And I the, like the whole Christmas vibe isn't there for me. I, I feel like I'm going to have the day of Christmas, which is going to be nice. Right. Make big meals, watch movies, have a nice day. But it used to be like a Christmas month. Right. But it's it's not like that this year. And I feel like that is a kind of analogy for the whole year. That all of life is this suffocated feeling this i experienced more anxiety this year than i have i think in my entire life combined right and i don't know if you have anything you want to touch on regarding that experience or or what you, what your experience might be one of the main things one of the major things i do is um i think a lot about mental practices and introspection and self-development I don't honestly know how much that comes across in my tweets. I, I think it's sort of a little bit weird, but but the amount that I think about that, I, I don't know. I, I do tweet about it. I don't know. What's your impression? Like, am I like a self-improvement guy on Twitter? You're not a self-improvement guy on Twitter. However, anybody that reads you closely will recognize that ultimately one of the most important things for you is the betterment of life and the betterment of man mm. and how about doing that. And you just get at it by being really precise about ideas that are all orbiting that concept. Right. Okay. Well, I can clarify myself here, which is, uh, I think that there are a large number of very specific techniques that people can learn and apply to their lives and spend hundreds and thousands of hours doing that will dramatically improve them as people. Hmm. Go on, say more. The reason I'm talking about this is when it comes to like COVID and like isolation and alienation and things like that. Yeah. I can sort of relate to people and I can sort of not. It's a little hard for me to tell what people are going through, to be honest, because the, mm. the information landscape is kind of messy. It's like you'll see someone tweeting about like how it was so shitty for them this year. And then it's like, how representative is that? But I have some trouble relating because, like, I spend, like, a, just a stupid amount of hours of my life doing things like meditation and introspection and of different types and analyzing imagery that comes into my mind and, like, Gentleman-style focusing and analyzing my beliefs. So that said, I kind of, like, believe me, like, th this year kind of hit me like a truck for sure. But yeah, I also had a just a, a fucking armory of tools for it. It, like, I, I, you know, it's like, how useful is it to tell people to meditate? Pretty much not useful. But that said, like, you know, people who do do this stuff already often find uh, tips and things like that. So, you know, as far as Christmas in particular, like, 
I think people's normal interactions are obviously being being disrupted right now. Look forward to 2021. I don't know. You talk about having a difficult time relating to the experience of uh, the nation, I guess. And I totally connect to that. And it, it gets back to like Stalin's concept of a million dead is a, is a statistic. And the reason that feels so true to me is that we're interacting with a lot of people in tech, a lot of people that have been working from home, mm. a lot of people that are, you know, on full alert when they go to the grocery store, that I look at the numbers. And last week, it was like 14,000 people died. And I was in New York during 9-11. Yeah. And that was, you know, around 4,000 dead, which is a lot, you know, and that's 4,000, including everybody. Right. And, and that was a lot. And that was so impactful. And it, it wasn't only impactful, but pretty much everyone knew someone that lost someone. And I look at last week and there were like 14,000 people dead. And I'm like, I don't actually know anyone that died. Right. So I'm seeing these huge numbers, but I don't connect with that in, in an emotional way because I can't imagine in a way that I am really internalizing of mm. someone that I know that died or someone like my friends, you know, parents or whomever. And, and that creates this paranoia because I think that I can make a single action on a single day and I'll kill my parents mm -hmm. somehow. And that's terrifying, but it's also divorced from my social connection to the concept, which is that I don't know how this is connecting to anybody's actual life, even though I see these terrible numbers. So it's it's very strange to live in this twilight world where you know terrible things are going on, but you're not hearing about it in, in within your sphere. Yeah, it's interesting. I you know, one of the memes you'll hear is like people being like, oh, people were so upset about 9-11, but why don't they care about all these deaths that are happening from COVID? And I think there's right. something true about that. Like, you know, it's nice to have like your emotions about the thing have any resemblance to the numbers, I think is generally, you know, good. Um, it's like an extremely rationalist take. Like, Oh, you should care about the numbers. Well, it's also like saying you should care about reality, right? It's like if you find yourself arguing against it, you end up sounding like a dumbass because it's like, no, dude, it was 14,000. That's bigger than 4,000. But the thing is, ultimately, I, I think that's not my take, that it's like sort of stupid or something to relate to them differently. Like, I just think it makes sense to take an attack on your country from people differently than an attack on your country from uh, from a virus. I mean, I don't know. They're different yeah. things. It's like if we're monkeys, it's like you don't get to scare the fucking virus off by, by hooting and hollering at it. But like you actually can strike fear in the hearts of your enemies by, you know, unifying in some kind of righteous American spiritual unity. Um, so I, I don't know. I think they're different things. It sort of maybe is appropriate that the, their narratives are different. Right. They're absolutely different. The strange thing for me is that there's this huge separation between 14,000 people dying and my mom dying. Right. right. So if, if my mom were to die, that would be the most tragic thing, but right. that's one, right? That's one. And we're looking at hundreds of thousands of people are now dead, but th that doesn't affect me 
anywhere near if I lost somebody that actually mattered to me. And this mm. is why I think that the numbers don't don't actually matter to the individual. That the only way that you can make things matter to people is when they can put it within a personalized, emotional, animalistic context where the animal is sensing some great emotion as a repercussion of an event. Um, so the difference between my rational mind saying this is terrible and my personal experience, which is like, where, where is all of the danger? Mm. It's just a strange, it's a strange feeling. I don't know. Have you seen any of that, uh, you know, that propaganda, like the World War One propaganda about like, beware the Hun. And they've got the picture of this, you know, evil looking monkey with a Prussian helmet on with the spike on top. And he's like carrying a scantily clad white woman away. This is a way that, you know, governments historically have tried to communicate to the to the animal self as they show you some beast stealing your wife. And, you know, now you now you hate the, the Hun, you know, now you hate the Germans or whatever it is. So I think there's right. some some truth to what you're saying right. about, about that communication. And it also gets to the idea of how poor our leadership has been in communicating the importance in a way that's consumable, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever seen, but I, I forget exactly. I, I forget if they're Korean or they might be Thai commercials that I saw on YouTube. And maybe I'll link them in the show notes. But it's like these horrifically tragic stories, like a two-minute commercial. But these um, stories are so emotional that after watching this commercial, you're in tears. This is like <laughs> for insurance or something, right? Yeah. Yeah. These commercials. I've seen these. Yeah. I've seen fucking seen oh, them. Oh, man. And they're like, they're so, they're so, so emotional. No, but it's two minutes, right? <laughs> yes. This is what I'm saying, though. Like a, a little bit on the capitalism topic. That shit pisses mm -hmm. me off. It pisses me off. It's like, I just don't think that a, an insurance company has the right to manipulate my emotions like that. I'm all for storytelling. You can see it in a positive light. You're like, oh, it's storytelling. You know, who cares if it's an insurance company? They're making art. It's a good YouTube video or something like that. Um, right. But just the fact that someone's doing that to sell me something, it actually does bother me because the the general phenomenon that we're talking about, yeah. again, it's the profit mode of finding a way to turn you into, into money. You know, it's it's you're concerned about like supposed benevolent leadership from like tyrants or whatever. I'm concerned about the the app. There's also not fucking benevolent leadership from massive companies necessarily. Mm -hmm. There's like very little. You know, the, it's like illegal for them to like put asbestos in our coffee or whatever the fuck it is. That's not the same as 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 like ruling my mind well, right? And that really is what it is ruling my ruling the minds of people like. This isn't to say that there's kind of like waving their stick around and people are like acting like zombies, but it's like the fact that you go online and you just see all these images, right? These like direct download to your brain, like ads and stuff. It, it's definitely that there's a level of conflict there of like psychic war. You know, I, I had the, I tweeted about this the other day. I was eating some chips and I look at the fucking Lay's chips bag and it says, uh, you know, just like can't stop eating them or something like that. And it's just a little thing. Does it harm me for, for them to have some words on a bag? No. But doesn't it irritate you a little bit? Like, can't stop eating them. Like, why can't I stop eating them? What is what is true? <laughs> what, what is true? Like, what do you mean? Please explain. 
Lay's. They're like, well, no, it's because you like our chips. I'm like, I kind of like your chips. I kind of fucking hate your chips, too, because that shit makes me fat, right? That shit is not good for me. Do I like myself when I'm eating your goddamn chips? It's like, can't stop eating them. And it's like, I feel I feel taunted by that. And a little bit, I'm, I'm developing it. I'm developing that, that irritation in myself because I don't want to to buy into this shit. So it's like that all mm. that said, you know, I think there are, 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 you know, honorable and good ways to do business. And this is also why I tweeted the other day about, um, you know, what product would you make that you'd be proud of? Because I'm not sure that I would be proud of making some shit that uh, fucking gives you diabetes. Not, not that I have a strong opinion about chips in particular, but like, especially, you know, all this sugary crap we put in our bodies. I'm not sure that I would be proud of that, but there are things I think I would be proud of. So I'm, I'm not an anti-business person in the general right. sense. There's a lot about how it's done that matters to me. What this gets to me is I'm thinking about trigger warnings and I'm thinking about um, like permission marketing. Like for someone to get an email from you, from your Substack, they need to click a link and put in their email and mm-hmm. then you're accessing them. But there are these... Uh, emotions that you're getting and you did not solicit them. And it was because, you know, if I'm watching your lie in April, I know it's going to be sad. I know it's going to be about depression. And I know the Mm. ending is going to just totally ruin me, but I'm subscribing to that feeling and I'm subscribing to that experience. Right. But if I'm watching television and I'm expecting to have fun and be entertained and I am instead extremely sad, that's violating my expectations and makes me feel negative and I'm rejecting it. Yeah. I think for me, it's, I'm okay with running into things I don't like on the internet and it's not so, I think the opt-in type thing is cool and can be useful and good and can sort of give you more control and stuff like that. I more think of it like just imagine a person is sitting across from you and that person has a great deal of money. And that person has a great deal of influence in society and they live in a very big house and, you know, their kids are going to go to great schools and you're going to struggle through your life. You're going to have some difficulties. You don't have all these privileges. And that person says to you, man, you just can't stop eating those chips. (laughs) (laughs) And that's that. It's just that's that. That's the conversation. It's like I I, that's just how I see it. You know, I, I don't it's like, what's my course of action? I'm not sure. I just feel like I'm being gazed at from across a sea of money, being told that I am a thing and that I am a way. And it's fine. You know, it's not going to ruin my fucking life. It's not like I've been (laughs) harmed by it. It's just that it kind of disgusts me that this is what we're doing. Even worse than the than the guy you described, I imagine like the giddy overly positive marketing dude that thought it up. I'm like, no, thanks. I don't, I don't need any of that. Yeah. I'm gonna segue here into the lightning round. Oh shit. Which is a series of questions that I have from Twitter for you. Uh Great. Yes. First of all, Eigen robot wants to know about the mustache. You have this bushy voluptuous mustache. Tell me, mm-hmm. what's your relationship with your mustache? What, what do you got there? <laughs> well, funny you should ask, Vecton or or Nick. Um, you know, I uh, I'll tell you the truth. I'll tell you the truth, which is that I wish I could grow a big ass beard, and I basically can't. 
the the hair grows strong on my chin, you know, real strong on my upper lip. I can get a little bit some other places, but it doesn't connect up in the right way. If I had my choice, I would have a Moses style, you know, King Arthur style style beard. Now, I've got a friend who's got a, a rather pimping beard. I'm just like, I'm straight up jealous. The thing is, I tried to grow it a couple times and it just really wasn't working out. I've got pictures somewhere and it's just kind of scraggly and ugly. What's what's the truth here is you got to work with what you got. And I definitely have a, uh, if I may say so myself, a, a rather sleek stash. Oh, yeah. I, I've got my, uh, here, I can shout out, um, you know, Honest Amish Beard Balm. All natural and organic helps your beard grow strong and full, except for in my case, it's my mustache, you know, but I've got this nice kind of balm that I put in it and it's uh, smells like anise. Um, it's kind of like a uh, licorice smell and it's rather pleasing. So, you know, it's kind of a hobby, kind of a style, kind of just a way of life. It gets me thinking about, uh, you know, styles in different centuries. I mean, you know, there were eras where if you didn't have a stash, probably right. they think you were a woman or something. I often get that actually. They just stare at my lip and they go, "I know what you are." <laughs> right? Hey, no, no hate, but um, no, no, no. I mentioned that because I was reading the. Uh, there's this samurai manual that I reference every five fucking minutes called the Hagakure. It basically says that you know, in the olden days, when they were collecting, you know, uh, trying to get a count of the number of dead on the battlefield, they would cut off the ears and the nose. But to make sure that the person who had been killed was not was not a woman, like make sure that people hadn't just killed civilians or whatever, um, they cut off the upper lip as well. And so mm. the the saying goes that samurai would cultivate the mustache in order to not be you know mistaken for for having been a woman when they when they were counted amongst the dead. Um, anyway, that's a very pre modern attitude. I'm trying to think what the heck book did I just read? Oh man, was it uh? Class by Paul Fussell. No, no. Was it? Uh, no, no. I'll get no. Was it? Um, was it Emil and the Detectives? <laughs> no, it no. was. Uh, it was Joseph Campbell. Ah, the Hero with a Thousand Faces. Nice. In the Hero with a Thousand. F <sighs> Do I even want to talk about this? It's kind of crude. It's kind of <laughs> terrible. It's kind of terrible. But talk about it. And you can delete it if you want. In a Hero with a Thousand Faces, if I remember correctly, if it's the book I'm thinking of, he talks a lot about myth and how different societies um, develop myth in different ways and also in very similar ways. And one of the things he talks about is um, both human sacrifice, but also self-sacrifice. And mm. evidently in a large tribe in southern India, what would happen was they had an emperor and after 12 years of reign, the emperor would get into this ecstatic mode and he would start cutting off pieces of his body, oh, his no. nose and his lips and his fingers. And he would just start cutting himself up until he died. And then they elected a new guy. And it's like, what? What? You know, what is going on? I do love stories like that. Like I, I don't like that that happened that much, but I do, I do like knowing that it happened. I gotta find more. Around. I, I, as soon as I heard that, I was like deeply disgusted and intrigued. Ugh. I mean the whole the whole samurai ethos involves you know if the if the 
you know, yeah, if you're if you're if your liege lord commands you to to cut your belly open, you do it, and often for not that good of reasons, you know, to our modern eyes. There's a there's a practice called tameshigiri, uh-huh. where I think it means like test cutting or something like that, where to test a sword, they would, you know, nowadays you can look up YouTube videos of tameshigiri and they cut open like wet bamboo kind of uh, these like bamboo rugs that they roll up and then they like cut through them with these like super sharp swords. It's pretty fucking awesome. Um, back in the day, they used to test these on dead bodies or on prisoners who were to be executed, you know, death row people. And on these old swords, on the inscription, on the uh, tang of the sword, which is the name mm-hmm. for the, the part of the blade that is inside the handle, you'll find inscriptions that say one rib cage, two wrists, or it'll say, you know, one pelvis, one femur. And it's referring to how much it had cut through uh, before stopping. And uh, so this is just a little bit of window into pre-modern Japan, but apparently, you know, they would hire out samurai to do this. Like the, the super rich families would hire out samurai to test their swords. But if you mess it up, if you kind of, get the angle wrong at the last second you could chip this sword that is like worth a fortune and ancestral and whatever and in some of these cases the samurai would kill themselves to account for the the thing that they had messed up wow it's a very different world so that's what i thought of when you mentioned your your indian king (laughs) that's yeah that's pretty intense i've never heard of that Mm. so the next the next lightning round question since we're (laughs) blazing through these yeah let's go so no silver v says talk about rival and why you both love him so much i i personally i gotta go with the knuckles avi uh right i fell fell in love right away when i saw that red face i'm having so i'm having no silver v on my on my uh on my twitch on my twitch tomorrow though i guess when this comes out this will have already happened so it may be on youtube um yeah all this stuff is accessible from my wall or you can dm me if you're that curious. Yeah, yeah, there we go. Um, I mean, what what is No Silver V? What is Rival Voices about? I think Rival Voices is about a few things. I think people follow him because they're like, what the fuck is he doing? And it's clear that he's doing a different activity than other people. Because a lot of people are like, here are three things I learned at my job. And No Silver V is like, what if it's the case that your shadow self is actually the self that isn't the self that you're... And, and they're like, what are you fucking talking about? So part of it is, <laughs> is is the crazy intellectual, spiritual, psychological thing that he's doing. And I think he's showering little bits of wisdom on other people, even as he kind of also showers other, uh, you know, more gross things on, on other people. So I, I think it's I think it's a net positive engagement. And yeah, and yeah, it's a cool guy. Well... I think I think it's fine, but I agree. He he has a lot of good takes, and this is suddenly turning into an advertisement. So, next lightning question: answer as quickly as possible. What is phenomenology, and why is it important? By Prince Vogel. Uh, phenomenology is everything that you have ever experienced, except for huh. it's understood in terms of the mind. So, in the sense, that the mind is the only thing you've ever experienced, which is not the only true way to describe the world, but it is one interesting way to describe the world in the sense that the mind is the only thing you've ever experienced. It is all of that. But to be less obscure about it, it is visual sensations. It is color and line. It is uh, strange feelings in your belly. It is intuitions that you don't have a name for. Um, It is uh, all of the 
little ways that you take control of your body and mind, all the little levers you have, the strange intuitions, your body map, the shit that you see when you close your eyes when you're falling asleep. That is all phenomenology. So it's consciousness. Sure. Why do we talk about phenomenology? Like you often reference phenomenology. You have a lot of takes. Why is it important? Phenomenology is a data stream, which you can learn to use as a tool. So imagine it's just that you've got all this messy information coming in, but you can clarify it to a point that you can start to uh, control your mind way better. So to me, the, the, the reason to talk about phenomenology is the same reason that you would talk about gaining greater control over, over your mind and your experience. Meditators are, are all about phenomenology. They tend to have a certain set of methods. I should slow down when I talk but I'm, I'm hyped, so I'm, I'm, I'm going too fast because um, you asked me about phenomenology. So if people want to explore and learn about their personal phenomenology, what should they do? I'll try to give an answer that you wouldn't hear somewhere else. Um, the answer that you would hear someone else somewhere else is like meditate. That doesn't even mean anything, though. Like meditate, like when you say yeah, meditate, that's, that's like a thousand different things. That's true. Here's one thing you could do. Pretend that you had to write down everything that was going on with your hand every single thing mm. uh, this is meant to be thing the, the other criterion is don't like write down like you know um this is how your hand works you know don't don't write down your intellectual understanding of your hand instead go directly to the experience of your hand and i, I can do it right now right so there's warmth in my hand uh, my hand is on this table so my finger pads there's like pressure the finger pads are different temperatures from each other. There's a little bit of like an electricity-ish kind of vibe going from my my wrist upwards. Um, mm. I'm not entirely sure where my hand starts and where it ends. It feels, now that I'm like spending this much attention to it, it actually feels larger than my other hand. And so I can keep making descriptions like this. And if you try to do this until you actually run out of things to describe, first of all, you're going to have trouble running out of things to describe. Second of all, you're going to have probably a pretty experience a pretty weird experience of having a hand um but that is something i would recommend for people who want to get involved with the phenomenology no i think that's a very good prompt um and there there are a ton of great prompts and it's one of those strange things because when you actually start getting in the meditation world you realize that there are all of these skills and tool sets and Naval Ravikant talks about how you should just sit there and like, mm. don't worry about it. Just sit there just, just for an hour. Just sit. Just mm. like, don't do anything. Just, just sit there and like, let whatever happens, happens and do that every single day for an hour. And then you have other people that are doing, talking about body scanning. You got people talking about focusing on your breathing. Right. Um, you, you have people that are using more directed focusing, trying to answer questions. You have people that have mantras and there's this, colorful exploration of the personal experience that uh i i think once you start practicing it it's hard like it's it's difficult kind of like focusing it's difficult to sit there because your little you know puppy dog mind wants to play and it's difficult to turn you sitting there alone into play when you're used to this sugar of your constant feedback from Twitter and Facebook and these pings, ping, 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 attention, 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 giving you everything you want all the mm. time. It's so it is, it is hard to sit and explore your inner world, but there's also 
nothing more like nutritious. There's nothing right better for your well-being. Arguably, yeah. Sit there, yeah. Than to just sit there. I would say it's that and lifting weights. Yeah, lifting's like, pretty good. <laughs> those, are the, those are the two things. Lifting's pretty good. Yeah, it obviously depends on your life, um, but I do think a lot of people could stand to do more introspection. You know, even like writing can be, you know, journaling. These are less like phenomenology focused, but they're also great ways of getting to know your mind. On your YouTube, you discuss withdrawal and return. Mm. And I've I've actually personally been thinking a a bit about this. Like I was thinking about how Jesus went into the garden Mm -hmm. before he, you know, ascended. And then I was also thinking about how Buddha isolated himself. So this has been on my mind. And I, even though I haven't read the same books you have, can you explain the importance of like this concept? But also I was wondering if you have any advice for how to use this to distill your own spirit. Like, can you do this intentionally? Yeah. First, I'll just give a quick spiel on the idea. Um, Yeah withdrawal and this I, I go over this in a video this so i'll just give the quick version but withdrawal and return is arnold toynbee's um concept arnold toynbee is a historian who wrote um, a study of history which is like 13 volumes long and uh he influenced this guy carol quigley who i'm currently reading the second of his books that i've ever read it's one of the best fucking things i've ever read um i love carol quigley so far but uh no i think he's one of the best historians who has lived period um mm-hmm. and but yeah this withdrawal and return refers to a sort of uh spiritual disassociation or dissociation that people who radically change history or civilization will go through and sometimes it's a physical dissociation or dislocation you could say um and that can look like wandering into the desert or it can look like going into some the sort of spiritual beyond whether it's through meditation or prayer or whatever it is or it can look like being exiled or chased out of your society and then the return is that they having gone to this sort of like beyond into the darkness right they return with something new to give back and then they deliver this this kind of payload from the spiritual outer, outer darkness that they were forced to travel to and that's how they improve society in the world. So what was your question about this? So my question about this is how can we make this practical for people? Like, can we go out and affect some kind of deep spiritual experience in ourselves, Or what do, what do you think about doing this with intention? This is another one of those weird questions where I don't think that everyone should try to be should try to be different. <laughs> Does that make sense? I think the withdrawal and return is, is I interpret it as being, as about being different, as about being uh, separate and, and necessarily a lot of times being lonely or alienated. And, and it's a dangerous thing. And so the thing is, in truth, I think no one has fully surpassed that. Um, you know, hopefully there are some people out there who basically don't have any kind of issue whatsoever with, loneliness or alienation. But um, if not, I think people could find this concept useful because a lot of times the reason we are separated from other people is specifically, I mean, sometimes it's just because we suck. I mean, that's the honest truth. Sometimes we're separated from other people because we're being shitty. But that account, that said, sometimes we're separated from other people because of because we're different, right? And a lot of times the ways in which we're different can trace down to something that is important about us, something that we don't understand. 
if your relationships always tend to go a certain way or you have a certain types of fights with people all the time or you just mm -hmm. simply haven't figured out how to make the connections you want um i often think that there may be something good about you that is tied up in all that often when you dig into it with people under this sense of alienation is is some kind of puzzle or problem that the that the individual person is grappling with that they haven't figured out how to you know bring back to humanity I think this is connected to another thing you said, which is I want to give people an itch in an area of their mind that they don't know exists. And <laughs> you also wrote, uh, you should be rattled by the splinters in your mind. Um, I, I had a quick question by splinters. Did you mean like disjointed and separation or did you mean a splinter like a wooden splinter? Like a literal wooden splinter in your mind. Right, because you were talking about itching, right? Uh -huh. So I was like, uh, is it is this talking about discomfort, or is right. this talking about the um, how how something can be splintered into into several pieces, that being the mind? And I also was wondering, how do you try to achieve this of kind of creating an itch in someone's mind for somebody to scratch in a way that leads them toward, I would assume, a better life? Well, these are two different questions. Yes. If I recall correctly, the, the splinters thing is I probably was talking about ways in which our minds are pretty divided. Um, a good mm -hmm. example of this is, like you were saying, the Stalin quote, you know, a million lives is a statistic and one is a tragedy. That I think it, that this, that's one of those splinter type things. Um, that's one of those fissures. It's one of those ways in which you have a type of knowledge that's not connected up to the rest of your knowledge. Like you have the knowledge that 10,000 people is more than one person. And that right. when it comes to tragedy, more is worse. Um, and mm -hmm. yet the, the dots are not connected. And so th that's the sort of thought that I was probably going after with that comment. As far as giving people itches, they, you know, in a place that they don't know exist, uh, that, that's, that's esoteric communication. You know, like koans, right? Like, you know, the, the sage asks, what is the sound of one hand clapping? That's the stereotypical koan. This is one hand clapping right now. Can you hear that? Oh, my God. You better call up the Buddhist authorities because this is a big deal. No. Um, <laughs> the sage asks you the question because it doesn't really have a good answer. And by grappling with the, the puzzle, you you may have some encounter with oneness or or, or, or whatever it is. Um, so, yeah, I mean, th th there's a conversation I suppose we could have about esoteric communication um, where you you know, pe people in this line of work, you might say, tend to go for little riddles and puzzles and strange sayings and interesting phrases um, that kind of stick around that, that guide you somewhere you wouldn't have otherwise gone. I also think snapping is a form of one hand clapping. You know, it's, yeah. I mean, it even rhymes. So right. I think it's just, it's a famous koan, but I think it's easily answerable. Right. Well, you, well, so. you, you've, you've moved on to the next level of coins. Unfortunately, I'm not equipped to give them to you, so you may need to seek out a real master. I need like a story about like a mule and a dog, and then like something weird happens with a trolley. That's right. That's my my level of coin. <laughs> yeah, trolley trolley questions is modern coins. That is funny. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, go ahead. But uh, you said the point of text is to have your soul shaped, your views, your opinions. I. I listened to this and I thought, well, that can be applied to everything. That's not just text. But, you know, when you experience anything with the intention of, of learning or getting better, 
you're always trying to shape your soul in a certain kind of way. And that made me wonder if that's like, where is the line between the way in which we want our soul to be shaped and everything else that we do? And I, I feel like that line, where we put that line, comes into how we approach the world. So if we're not really doing that all of the time, then we're being egotistical and we're we're involved in the self. And I, I think that like this concept you have of shaping your own soul, that th this is something we should be accessing all the time and not only through text. Can you touch on that? Like, do, do you agree with me? I don't know. It depends how, you know, in a kind of broad, evocative way, I do think, yeah, like more, more, more self-development is good. I also, by the way, I don't necessarily think that, you know, this sort of shaping the self type thing is the only way we should read text. I mean, sometimes you're like consulting a manual, you know, when you read Ikea, it's like, I want to know where to put the screw, please. Like that, that doesn't have to be some kind of deep exploratory thing. And I think even things a little bit less shallow than that, you know, sometimes you just want to know, like, what are the things on the periodic table and how do they relate to each other? So I consider that a valid type of like learning, but I don't know, tell, tell me more about your intuition. If, if that's kind of where you're at, like that, we should have more, that we should have more of something. It's like, I, I, I don't know, like, it would be nice if like more contemplation happened, probably. Then again, there are people out there who are probably doing too much contemplation. They should be getting shit done. Um, and this is sort of an axis on which I, I find myself split often because mm. I love to think. And I, you know, this year I've been doing a bunch of kind of like knowledge-y stuff. Like I'm, I'm producing content. I'm on YouTube. I got the, you know, the Twitch thing for a while was just games, but I've kind of switched it to this like talk show stuff um, and tweeting right. and writing essays, all the shit. And it's like, that's all brainy stuff. But like, I don't know, maybe I should start a company, right? So it, it's like, mm. I, I am a, I'm a little suspicious of my own intellectual inclinations. Also, not to conflate intellectual work with spiritual work. I think those are different things, um, though they're related. So I, I, I've, I've become a little bit suspicious of my own self-development things because I'm like, maybe I need to work on something outside of me, you know? So I'll clarify a bit here. You wrote about how text is intended to shape your soul. But the way I see this is that we come from a perspective or, or from an approach that's either closed off or closed minded, where we're defensive, aggressive, worried, paranoid, mm. or we come from a place of openness and creativity and friendliness and acceptance. And it sounds like that the intention of text is to touch people that are coming from this approach of openness and creativity and learning rather than defense, right? If I'm trying to talk to you about capitalism, I don't want to be talking to somebody that's coming from a place of defense. I want to be coming at somebody that will be willing to at least momentarily embrace my idea mm. so that they can understand me and I can make that connection. But I'm looking at all of relationships and all of connection from this way that we can come at everything with a degree of creativity and engagement. Right. So you, you're just talking about how you read, but I'm thinking about 
how we can engage in life with others. Right. Yeah. And, and then it sounds like for, for you, the part of that that you're focusing on is kind of like openness, sort of generativity. And a willingness for the experiences I'm having to shape my soul, right? Because when, when we're being closed off, when we're being defensive, what mm. we're refusing to do is shape our soul. Mm. We're saying, you have all of these ideas. I'm not even going to try to internalize them. What I'm instead going to do is tell you why you're wrong because I want you to be shaped instead. Yeah, it's interesting. Descartes has this quote that I can dig up where he he basically says that, you know, there's something right in everyone's opinion. You know, every opinion has something right in it. And it's yeah. basically persuasion advice. He's saying that, you know, to change a person's mind, it's easier to start from by appreciating what they have that is that is true, you know, the side of the thing that they see rather than the side of the thing that they don't. So I don't know. I, at the same time, I think a lot of people don't even find themselves in situations that are that abnormal. Like th these situations don't always call themselves out. You're not always yeah. like stepping off of a spaceship into a new world and being like, oh, cool, aliens. Let me like learn what you believe. It's like the truth is that it's just like the people around you, right? Like we really misunderstand the people that we know well, um, let alone people on the Internet. So I don't know. Openness is good. Also, like not all interactions are, are, are worth engaging with, right? It's like things do get adversarial, you know, when it comes to like, for, for example, being online, sort of learning to not waste your time with stuff that's not going anywhere. So as a, as an aspiration, I'm down with, I'm down with what you're saying. I do think it's a good, generally a good intellectual and social approach. Right. I think it's also just like a form of meditation. For instance, like, let's say I'm on Twitter and somebody says something negative to me, like you're a loser for thinking that mm. or whatever. And that gives me an opportunity to just look at the way I'm reacting. Right. Right. And so it, even if I have a negative emotional reaction, it gives me a potentially positive experience in my ability to say, oh, I'm reacting this way. I can observe this and make a generous choice about how I'm going to move beyond this. Hmm. But I'm going to I'm going to move on. We're we're past an hour here, but I'm having a lot of fun. So if you're all right, I, I can continue. I've got more notes here. Yeah, if you got some more stuff. So, Michael, you wrote, it's possible to receive a deeper and clearer message from the world about who we are and what we're doing here if we know how to pay attention. Can you clarify, do, by deeper message, do you mean like in a Jungian or, or potentially Straussian way? Hmm. Interesting question. I don't know about Jung and Strauss. <laughs> what, I mean, I, I know some things about Young and Strauss, but to ask, say more. Keep going with your question. Let me see if I can, if I can go a little deeper in that as well. The Straussian concept is that there is the object level and then there's like the underlying intention behind writing. That like there might be uh, the alchemist, right, for instance, is about a journey of this individual that goes through these difficulties and finds out where the treasure is. But right. it's the obvious Straussian concept there is that this is a metaphor for life and how you should be living your own life. And the Jungian concept is that we're 
through our expression, communicating something that is deeply human. And so we can look at Christian literature, or we can look at Jewish literature, or um, we can look at Buddhist literature or Hindu literature. And when we read the stories that people may have purveyed as true, yes. what we can consume them as is not necessarily true. We don't necessarily have to believe them, but we can accept them as something that is true about humanity. And so we can read the Epic of Gilgamesh and we can think about, you know, the Greek gods. Yeah. And yeah. instead of looking at these dudes as like individuals that experience these things, we can extrapolate some concept that dreams. Right. Dreams are humanity personalized and that myth is depersonalized dreams. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I'm with you. So I guess, yeah, I do have the view that in some kind of uh, indirect sense, you could say that I believe that the universe has a has a Straussian interpretation that is waiting for us to encounter it. Mm. It's hard to describe this. Um, and I'll start by describing the difference between intellectual and emotional level beliefs. Intellectually, you know that you were born at some time and you will die at some time. Emotionally... You like don't really remember when you were born. You kind of think you've already always existed and you may or may not believe you're going to die. And like, unless you've experienced a lot of death, you're like kind of probably think you got like a lot of time, but also you're anxious sometimes when you think about it, you know, something like that. I, uh, the, these differences, these divergences are, are important in my view, in my opinion, because that goes back to this, the, the splintering thing I mentioned earlier, which is just that, you know, sometimes parts of your mind believe something and other parts of your mind don't. And you have an incoherent opinion on one topic, right? You believe that you will die and you believe that you will not die. And so the reason I'm explaining this is because people are looking for something, like we're all looking for something, right? We're all here looking for something. And a lot of times what we think we're looking for is not what we're really, you know, we're not always happy to find it. You're like, as long as I get my get a better job, I'll just be happy. But then you're not. Or you're like, as long as my, if my girlfriend would just stop doing this thing, I'll like, we'll finally be perfectly happy. But then of course you're not. And right. th there's something like, I, I don't consider this a, a, a message of, of total misery and like Sisyphean struggle, though there is mm. some of that. More that, you know, we don't always catch the plot of what we're doing here. And so I yeah. think part of the contemplative approach to life is to... And the intellectual approach to life could be about this, though there are many, many, many ways to be, many valid ways to to do intellectual investigation. But yeah, to figure out why we're doing here in that sense. Like, that's a, that's a question which is commonly considered a spiritual one. Um, what are we doing here and what's it all for? And so I think it's a question that we can get answers to. But you need to, like, listen to the universe in a weird way. And, and I kind of hate hearing myself say that phrase because I sound like fucking right. hippie. Um, but the thing is, the hippies did a lot of cool explorations in this area. Like hippies took psychedelics and tried to have free love and they kind of went off the beaten path. And a lot of that stuff is very shallow, but some of it is not right. Right. They, a lot of a lot of those traditions, you know, they ran into stuff from ancient India and whatever. doesn't mean that it's good because it's from ancient India, but there's a little bit of a pedigree for some of these kind of things that sound new age and like faux intellectual woo or whatever. There's something there's something there. It doesn't mean it's anything like what the what the practitioners think think those things are. Um, so I I have a question. Yes, which is that uh, I'm going to repeat 
that quote that, that I was talking about earlier, which is, it's possible to receive a deeper and clearer message from the world about yeah. who we are and what we're doing here if we know how to pay attention. So yes. my follow-up question is, you also wrote that what is important is how you act. So can you expand on how to pay attention and how to best use that attention toward proper action? I mean, th this is a hard question to answer in a general sense because everybody's different. It's much easier to answer for a specific person. Mm. Um, here's one activity I can suggest. A lot of times if you articulate your intuitions about how your life will go in the future, weird stuff pops out. And uh, this is something I believe Jordan Peterson talks about, which is mm. our lives often follow these kind of story arcs you know, maybe there's something very psychologically important about story and narrative because our lives often seem to follow these arcs. And you might want to change what you're doing if it turns out that you're following a story arc that is, I don't know, like a tragedy. I think that this is a kind of thing where you're talking about paying attention. It's like, you know, look at your life, look at your choices, right? It's like, what do you pay attention to? Look at what you are, look at what you're doing. Look at how you're living. I mean, one way to do this is to get somebody to ask you pointed questions mm. to grill you. Like, and this is a thing that I that I will do for people that I've done for people um, generally with their with their consent. Um, <laughs> but how do you how do you engage with that? How do you invite someone to quote unquote grill you? A lot of people are not going to be very comfortable with that, or, or they won't know how to do it. I mean, right? You know, I don't know. I could grill you right now. <laughs> Go ahead. Should I, do it? I invite you do it. Okay. Yeah. Why are we, why are we doing this? Why are we doing this recording? My drive for doing this recording is because I think that you have some knowledge, some wisdom about the world that not enough people are accessing. And I want to bring that out of you and right. allow it to improve other people so that they can learn from you and your experience because you have this deep work, this mm. deep contemplative work right. that has results, that has an outcome, that has learning. And I am positive that you know things that I don't know. I know that you know things that a lot of people don't know. And I think that if they can engage with that, Mm -hmm. then they can live a life that they find more fruitful and more positive. Okay, let me ask you another question. Do you really think I've got good stuff or do you think that people will think I have good stuff? Or is it more that like you kind of think the right way to do a podcast is to find someone who seems like they have good stuff, but you don't really know if I have good stuff? And I, and I, I promise I won't be offended. Firstly, I know you have good stuff. Secondly... I knew it would be fun no matter what. Yeah. And thirdly, I take this as kind of defensive. Like it's it's like, why do you why do you think I have good stuff? Yeah. But, you know, it's obviously I wouldn't you have you on. Let me back up here. Yeah. For me to do a podcast, it's about a 10-hour investment for me. Right. Because right. I have four to five hours of editing. And I have the conversation itself. I have setting up the conversation. I do a pre-interview to make sure that I have some content 
to talk about and, and some kind of root, even though we, 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 we've really thrown away the root here. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> That's how it goes, man. You gotta, you gotta ride the waves. Yeah. In general, I only do this because I think that genuine positive experience is at the intersection of mm. expression and generosity. Mm. And I, I think that if you can find a way to express yourself in a way that others will benefit from, then right. you've hit a gold mine. And I don't need to make a ton of money from this because just the process of sitting here, speaking right. to you, learning from you, if anyone else benefits from it, aside from me, then that's just, that's just gravy. It's gravy. Okay. So, so you sort of answered my question, which is okay. Basically, if I were going to push this further, and maybe we got to do one where somebody interviews, interviews you. Um, if I were to push this further, what I would want to know more about is the, the true narrative of you. And I would mm. want to know about the person who, I, I don't know if you live with people or live by yourself, but in the place in the world that you live with the job that you have, who's doing this podcast. And you know, I'm just kind of loading up the context, right? Who has yeah. a certain relationship to intellectualism. You know, you've tweeted about um, not considering, you, you know, you're, you're not like doing knowledge work. Um, and you have this relationship to this community that has a, like a lot of, you know, smart asses, right? Um, that's my word, not yours. I would want to know about the sort of I think that when people are doing something, they're often trying to kind of close a rift in the world, like they see a problem. So I'd want to know more about like, what's the problem you see? And like, how does this stab at it? How much is that a personal thing? How much is that a communal thing or a societal thing? You know, you can always go deeper. I mean, to really get into this, I guess I'd want to do like a more a pretty extensive interview. But as far as the original thing we were getting at about like, you know, how do you get people to pay attention? Well, I, I don't want people to like go out and like, be dicks to each other but like mm. you figure out what what assumptions you need to question and you kind of articulate the story that you've been telling yourself about who you are and what you're doing you ask is that true why why am i really doing all this stuff um i think to myself i'm going for x but am i really going for y let's do it and uh you can interview me that's cool you know i've uh i've already recorded a little piece between Myself and uh, Prince Vogel, which was my first episode where he interviewed me as a warm up mm. before my first episode ever released. Right. And I was always unsure of sharing that because it's like really embarrassing and, and right. personal for me. So I might release it in the future. I'm kind of putting it off. We'll see. Mm. Uh, but yeah, we can do that episode. That would be great. I, cool. I would be happy to, to make a man out of out of the voice. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap up here, um, but I, th there's a lot that I want to touch on. But I'm gonna try for a very difficult last question, which is that you talk about producing quality, you talk about mastery, you talk about developing skill and discipline, and you, you talk about honesty and sincerity. And you also talk about virtue. I've read through your work. But when I read all of this, I feel like it's all interconnected into a certain mechanism, right? About living the good life. Hmm. So my question is, how does producing skill and mastery and that focus 
lead to a virtuous life. You said that honesty surpasses quality, and yet quality seems to be the result of mastery and skill. So why is honesty superior? I wrote that in the context of a, of a piece that I wrote on my Substack. What did I call it? A manifesto on heroic sincerity. Yeah, this is one of those probably the weirdest thing I've ever written. And also one of the things that's gotten me some of the most interesting responses from people in terms of people DMing me being like this, you know, thank you for writing this. I've gotten a couple of messages like this, not to flex or anything, just saying. I wrote that in the context of that piece because I uh, was kind of going with this metaphor as the sort of spiritual quest having some similarity or resonance with the quest of the artist. And the reason I'm talking about it in that way is because um, artistry is very interesting um, to me because you have this weird intersection of the personal, which is, you know, the artist has some kind of con connection to something that they want to express, and also the, the impersonal, which is skill, right? Skill is a very, in many ways, a very impersonal thing. Skill is the sort of iron law of the universe, which is that the brush, which is made of a certain type of hair, um, moves in a certain way, and the paint dries in a certain way, and you know the the move the camera works in a certain way, and th that's that's a hard impersonal thing met with a softer personal thing, which is the sort of spiritual inclination or intuition of the artist, or in some cultures the the you know divine spirit that they're transmitting. You're talking about skill and mastery as a way to quality, right? And this is all to get at proper action. And in all of this, you exercise some kind of a taste. We're developing taste. That's a component of it. And you're saying that honesty surpasses quality. So another way to phrase this is how is proper action different from producing quality? The way I see it is that often the thing you're calling proper action is natural. You know, people will go into a social situation, they'll be anxious as hell, or they'll go mm -hmm. to talk to a girl or whatever, and they'll be anxious as hell. The, the, the nerd asks, the virgin asks Chad, um, how do I, how do I, you know, how do I be attractive in the way that you are? And Chad says, just right. be yourself, man. And <laughs> it's totally useless advice. And it's funny because that advice has never helped anybody anywhere. Um, but <laughs> that said, there, there's some truth to it, which uh, goes beyond, you know, being an attractive person or, or whatever, like including in the artistic space. When you go in with a plan, you often are um, rigid and unmodifiable by your environment. A lot of natural mm -hmm. action is about being modifiable by your environment. And so you imagine Michael Jordan goes in and it's like game six or whatever. And if he's stuck playing game five, he doesn't win, right? Like right. if he's doing something that he's done in his head before, he doesn't win. He wins because he's in the moment. He's alive, right? He's shaped by his circumstance and takes exactly the action that is proper to that circumstance. And so when I'm talking about artistry and I'm talking about you know, sort of spiritual conduct and say that, um, you know, honesty surpasses quality. Obviously, the best thing is quality and honesty. But a lot of times in our effort to be high quality, we um, lose touch with the basic instinct, you know, the basic natural flexible instinct that is part of being shaped by circumstance, 
And so that, that's all kind of abstract and I can easily apply it to any specific area. But, you know, if you want to make something good for the mutuals, right? It, are you making mm -hmm. it for your idea of the mutuals, right? Are you stuck in your head about that? Or like, have you listened to them? Have you interacted with them? And, you know, you think to yourself, oh yeah, I like the mutuals. I'm going to make them something nice. You know, what if you like them, but you also kind of fucking hate them? Maybe the thing that they would actually like is your art piece about how like, you know, interacting with people on Twitter is shallow bullshit. Like people might resonate with that better, even though it's not nice, right? Even though it's not correct or whatever. That's the, that's the difference. That's the difference between honesty and quality. Quality can be a constructed and rigid thing. Obviously it can become natural. You want it to become natural. It's actually indispensable, but given the choice in this kind of obscure spiritual context that I'm talking about, um, I, I like the natural spirit better than I like the studied one. So you're saying quality is very valuable, but the problem is that the only way or the best way to get to it is not by focusing on it, right? When you try to acquire quality, you cannot have it. That the problem is that in our trying, we are defeating ourselves and that what we really need to do is be alive, getting at you is what is necessary. And so when you focus on quality, you're focusing on the the other, you're focusing on outside. But what you really need to do is cultivate this authenticity and this earnestness and this sincerity. And that when you forget about the quality and you focus on the work and you focus on moving forward and you focus on generosity and gratitude that's where you're going to be doing your best work but if you focus on trying to do your best work then you're going to trip yourself up yeah it's about not losing the honesty there's a there's a david bowie quote about this you know in in it he talks about how you know you start making the things that you think people want and artists often make their worst work at that time and that has been very influential to me Michael Kersey, I did not even get through half of my notes here. We have a lot more to discuss. I hope we do a second round sometime soon. And uh, this, is, this has been an incredible pleasure. I had a lot of fun. So tell me, wait, do you end it by saying this was a becoming creature? <laughs> <laughs> this was a becoming creature. No, actually, actually, I am. <clears throat> This has been a becoming creature. <laughs> Had a ton of fun with Michael. If you want to hear more episodes, you can check out becomingcreature.substack.com. It's Christmas, so I'm going to get out of here. Happy I was able to get the episode out for all of you. Check out Michael Kersey on Michael C-U-R-Z-I. He's on YouTube, Super Pure, Twitch, Twitter, everywhere. And you can find me at Becoming Critter on Twitter. And my music was by Frank Ivey. Gonna go spend some time with family. Have a lovely holiday.